Hello and welcome to episode 33 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis. My guest today is Emily Dye, Policy Director at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. Emily joins us to discuss how taxes on superannuation undermine Australians' ability to retire on a living wage. Emily Dye, how are you? I'm doing very well, Salvador. Thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, thanks for joining us today. Look, you have written that superannuation has failed in its goal of helping Australians achieve financial independence in retirement. Is it too soon to say that, or is that really true? Well, I think there's one number that really shows that, and that is 68% of Australians rely on the age pension. That's a failing. Are you uh, serious? Two-thirds? Yeah, two-thirds. Oh, over the age of 65. So once you hit that retirement age, most people just plan it into their retirement that they will go on the pension. So right. unless you're in one of those top income brackets, you just rely on the taxpayer. And I think that's a problem. I don't think we necessarily should be subsidizing our, we have to work all through our lives in order to save for our own pensions and pay for the pensions of the people above us. And that causes um, weird distortions depending on the size of generations uh, that causes insecurity. And it also shows that all of these people qualify for the means tested age pension which isn't a good thing. They shouldn't be qualifying for it. They should have enough money on their own. Is this, I, I, forgive me, I, I didn't know the figure was that high. So you're taking me by surprise here. Is that because the superannuation system hasn't yet kicked in and these are people who retired before they accumulated superannuation savings? Uh, I think the real, um, a lot of people don't think that there's enough superannuation savings that 9.5% isn't large enough. We need to increase it to 12. And that's the plan is to increase it to that 12% um, by 2025. But I think that the real issue is the amount of tax on it. We are taxed both when we first put that superannuation in and when we withdraw it. Um, we're taxed both on, on the interest as well as on the initial investment. And that's a lot of money and that adds up. And the way the government calculates it is they're like, it's tax-free, it's a tax offset because you're not paying the full capital gains or the full income tax. But I don't think that's the way we should be calculating it at all. Um, we should be calculating it from zero. What is the tax for up from zero? And that is that 15% initial contribution. And that really adds up as interest compounds over time. So if you lose that initial 15%, that's 15% that you will never grow. Um, and that drops the average person's superannuation, or superannuation retirement or pension when they go withdraw it annually by almost $10,000 a year. Now, I, I haven't done the calculations here. I'm not an expert on superannuation. In fact, I wore my gray, my gray suit because we were going to talk taxes today. Uh, but I, I really want you to help us understand this. Would reducing the taxes on in the superannuation system merely leave a few higher income retirees retiring on even higher income, or would it pull up the bottom and drag people out of age pension eligibility? It would very much drag up the bottom. And I think it's a good comparison to look at what that 12% superannuation guarantee increase would do and compare it to what a tax cut would do. And the tax cut wins. Uh, so say you're an average worker, you're making uh, the median salary is $66,000, $820 every year. Uh, you're contributing that 9.5%. Uh, as a result, you end up with a retirement, say, say you have an interest rate of 6.5% of $40,000 a year approximately. Mm -hmm. 
If we take the tax away from that, that retirement adds up to $54,000 a year, which is higher than if we increased it to 12%. If we just increased it to 12%, kept the tax as it is, you'd only be making 50. So that's $4,000 for the median worker. So 50% of workers would fall in, in around that category. You've got the bell curve. So it's a good portion of workers are in that category to the right and left of that number. That's a lot of money uh, for an ordinary person. Right. Uh, let me say some quick hellos to our viewers who are watching. Anthony, uh, Max, Gene, Bradley, thanks for being here. If you want to start getting questions, and of course we'll get to questions in about 10 minutes, but uh, you're welcome to start feeding them in now. Um, Emily, what prevent? What would prevent people, I mean, if we just want to prevent people from falling into the age pension, obviously lower taxes on superannuation would do that. Is that the only mechanism or do we have other ways to prevent people be having reliant on an age pension? Yeah, well, I think we need to give people more flexibility in their own choices with their retirement. The government has a very strict system and they have a lot of taxes and a lot of fees in order to push you into the system that they want you to go into. And as a result, people don't get that flexibility. If they wanted to save for a house, it's a lot more difficult. Um, so they found that 38% of the savings, for every, so for every dollar that you put into your superannuation, 38 cents of that comes out of other savings. So it is an overall increase in savings, but it also, it brings it into one basket. And as any good finance person will tell you, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So a lot of people don't have that diverse set of uh, equity when they go to retire. And that means they don't have a house, which means they're still paying rent or they didn't get their deposit in time. And so they're still paying their mortgage when they go to retire at 65. And that's a huge burden. So you can reduce your salary down by down to like 70% of your working salary in retirement if you don't have to pay rent, if you don't have to pay for a mortgage. But if you have those two things, they're the two biggest expenses for most ordinary people that really hurts them in retirement. Right. But I know you advocate that that's implicitly saying that people can opt out of the superannuation system, at least to some extent. If you allow people to opt out, isn't there the risk that many people will simply accumulate no savings at all and then ultimately become dependent on the taxpayer in old age? I think there's two ways of dealing with that. Um, one is an opt out system as opposed to an opt in system. Okay. Uh, Behavioral economists in the United States found that if they just opted employees into a 401k plan, which is the U.S. plan for retirement, about 70 to 80% just stuck with it. Um, they didn't pull out. Uh, the people that did pull out, they did so for whatever personal reason that was, whether they're saving for a house or they have a personal emergency. And I think in COVID, we've really seen an exodus out of superannuation, showing that a lot of people need that money. And they needed it during COVID and they didn't have it. They didn't have emergency funds saved up because they weren't saving that extra 38 cents elsewhere that they could have had. Um, so that was that's one way of keeping people still saving for retirement, just making it opt out. They'll stay in and they'll continue to save. And the other is having these tax incentives. And we already do have some tax incentives where um, you can write it off of your income tax. Keeping those in um, will definitely incentivize people to keep saving for retirement. Right. So you're more talking about the government in a, in a way becoming a partner of retirement instead of a, 
you know, someone who picks up the pieces if it doesn't work. I mean, would you characterize your preferred system as a kind of personal compact with the government? I mean, the tax incentives that allow people or encourage people to retire? Yeah, I think that it, I think that's a good way of describing it, as opposed to this compulsory mandatory system where the government has decided this is what's right for you um, instead of you choosing for yourself what's right in your own situation. Uh, superannuation retirement isn't one size fits all, and yet we have a one size fits all system. Right. Now, I've been hearing a lot of police activity in your area. Are people trying to prevent you getting this message out, Emily? <laughs> Apparently, the people on Oxford Street are not happy about <laughs> <laughs> they want their superannuation compulsory increase, apparently. Uh, look, I, I, I really want to ask, I'm a sociologist, of course, I'm not a tax specialist, but as a sociologist, I'm very concerned about social solidarity, about the fact that we do in uh, societies like Australia or like you know, our own home country, the United States, we do care for people in retirement and we won't allow people, we won't allow the prospect of having mass poverty among the elderly. If things are more voluntary, I mean, if, if you know, we have two ways we could move for superannuation, it could move towards a more voluntary system, or it could move towards a US style system where in the United States, there's simply a tax, you know, social security tax, and people have to pay the tax, they have no choice. And then ultimately, they get a pension in retirement. If you're going to move one way or the other, why are you suggesting Australia should move towards more voluntary superannuation, instead of going the other way towards a compulsory tax. And don't say because you're a member of the Australia Taxpayer Alliance. <laughs> I, want, I want the substantive answer for that. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be hard for us to argue that superannuation isn't, in a sense, a tax. It comes across as very much an income tax. Uh, we found that with the elasticity, um, the economic term for you're compulsive to doing it. You're very inelastic. You cannot change your behavior. You're stuck paying that 9.5% you're the one that ends up paying the tax, or in this case, the safe, the forced savings program. So that 9.5% comes directly out of your income. So it really it is, in a sense, a tax that you do get back at the end. It isn't, um, it isn't on top of your salary. It is out of your salary. And I think that a lot of Australians don't think of it that way. So I'd say that we already are there. Um, <laughs> I don't think that we should stop funding our low-income people in retirement. Um, things happen. Uh, I can't imagine trying to retire now if you've lost a lot of your money as a result of the recession. Uh, that's hard. That happens. Um, there's also risks like longevity risk where so you're expecting to live till you're 85, but you live till you're 100. That's an extra 15 years that you could not have predicted. And That's funny. A longevity risk that we'd like to have. Yes, it's a great risk to have. You probably should plan a little bit. Um, and that's actually, um, there's a suit, that's where death tax comes into it, which is really interesting. People are more willing to save that extra for that extra 15 years if they're like, well, if I don't live long enough, at least my kids will get it. Um, but we so, do tax that. Uh, let me get a little theoretical on you here then. Uh, if superannuation is in effect a tax, Really, what you're talking about is restructuring that tax, not eliminating it, so to speak. Uh, why does, I mean, how do you design a well-structured 
retirement tax that supports people in retirement. I mean, if you were to sweep away the current system and design something from scratch, something from scratch, what would you be proposing for Australia? Well, I think my argument is there isn't one perfect system. And so we need to let each individual person choose what's right for them and what really works for them. Okay. And that requires letting them opt out, letting them make their own financial decisions. A lot of Australians don't know where their superannuation is really invested. Uh, I've seen lots of public outcry recently from uh, the environmental movement. It's like, your superannuation is invested in coal. Um, and people are like, I want my superannuation to be in renewables. And they didn't know. Um, and whatever their your personal feelings on coal or renewables, doesn't matter. They didn't have that choice. They didn't know that their money was going to something that they didn't support. Um, so it goes on to that. And also just they didn't get to make those initial investment decisions. Um, and what they think, they what, what reflects their values, what they think is going to return them the best amount, I think, each individual person needs to decide their level of risk um, and what they hope to retire on and what that plan is. Right. But I mean, I could see the opposite argument that we can't let people choose how to invest because if they invest badly, I've got to support them in retirement. <laughs> right. And if I invest badly, you've got to support me in retirement. That also seems unfair. Yeah, I think that you you get into that situation where it's, well, people will just behave badly. Um, but the pension isn't big. <laughs> um, so you could retire, you could behave badly and you get your $24,000 a year, which- 24,000 a year, is that the level of the age? That's the max you can possibly get on the pension. Wow, okay, I want superannuation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you would like um, a decent retirement. And right now, the average person, that's about what their superannuation comes to. When they get their superannuation income, just because because it's taxed so highly, uh, because they aren't saving consistently, um, because there's all these different things, it's quite low. So it sounds like you're saying the system we have now is is fundamentally a good system. The problem in it is the taxation that's occurring, the incentives that are occurring, and fundamentally, the lack of freedom that yes. it gives people. That's exactly it. I think that the lack of freedom is probably the biggest issue in the superannuation system. Uh, I believe that people, uh, not governments, know best how to dictate what their life looks like and what choices they want to make. Now, superannuation, of course, you already brought up, uh, reduces the diversity of savings. People can't crucially put their money into housing. Now, in Australia, of course, housing has been boom, boom, boom you know, for the last 20, 30 years, but it doesn't mean it always will be. If you were to allow people to withdraw from superannuation to invest in housing, of course, there would immediately be a housing boom. Yes. <laughs> lots of people, but, but would that ultimately potentially leave people with, you know, these stranded assets across? Would it become, I guess what I'm asking is, would it become a systemic problem since diversity investing in investing is fine, but we know it won't be diversity. We know it'll be housing. Yeah, um, that would cause definitely a boom. I think that you need to think about the housing market as less of this equity investment and more as this is the thing that's going to provide for me in my retirement. Mm. Um, it means that I won't be paying rent in my retirement. So. I would recommend it. I'm not a financial advisor, so don't take it. This is like sole financial advice. But to have that home as being 
um, it can earn you money in retirement. If you want to rent out a room, the kids no longer live there, you've got extra space, you can Airbnb it, um, you have you don't have to pay those extra expenses. And that just makes it so much easier in retirement for the average person. If they're investing broadly across real estate, then that's different. But we're already doing that with our superannuation funds where people invest in real estate-based funds. All right. Well, uh, this is an option as one of the investments for a lot of uh, funds. Okay, now we're about to go to questions in just a minute. But first, and anyone who does have a question, please get those in the chat box in YouTube and we'll get your questions in, like I said, just one minute. I do have one question for you, Emily, before we go to viewer questions. And that's about this issue of freedom. I, I mean, we're talking here about policy. What's good policy? Will, uh, you know, is it right to tax this? Will, if you have a higher tax rate now, will it reduce people's income in retirement? And that's all great for policy discussion. But what about freedom? How much does freedom matter in this? And, and frankly, the freedom to fail, that if people do want to, if do people do take chances, some will fail, but that's their, well, freedom to, to use a, an overabused word. Well, what's your own thought about people's responsibility for their own life? I think that people know best, not government. Um, that I know what I personally want and what I'm personally comfortable with as my own level of risk. And that allows for innovation and that allows for a lot of different things in society we wouldn't get if we were all wrapped in bubble wrap and not allowed to make risky investments. Uh, we wouldn't have um, all of these great companies. We wouldn't have an iPhone if it wasn't for someone taking an insane amount of risk and um, doing something crazy. Um, and starting a business for this wild thing that nobody knew about. Uh, so it's only through allowing people that freedom to innovate and that freedom to choose what they personally want to do with their own life and with their own investments and the money that they personally work so hard to earn that we can progress as a society and as humans. Yeah, it's funny you mention entrepreneurship because I, I honestly, until you mentioned it just now, I hadn't thought of the possibility that a lot of people given access to their superannuation savings, might use it to start businesses. Uh, is that like the pool of savings that right now is going into the ASX and into real estate trusts? Could this be used to drive entrepreneurship? Oh, absolutely. I know that if I had a big chunk of money, I would seriously consider pursuing whatever dream that is. Um, and I know that a lot of people have those hopes and dreams, but they're just not able to quite save enough. Um, to get that initial funding, that initial right. bucket of money that they need. So that should be allowed. And uh, when you're taking almost 10% of someone's income off the top, right. it makes it very difficult for that to happen. All right, so let me take a minute now to encourage everyone to press the like button. If you press thumbs up, uh, remember this will go on YouTube permanently after this live session. And the more thumbs up we have during the live session, the more chance other people will be shown Emily Dye's thoughts after we go to uh, permanence on YouTube. Also, of course, we'd love to have you as a member of the Center for Dependent Studies. There should be a support link there in the comments box. Just click support. Membership is just $40. $40 a year is, oh, Emily, I'm, I'm going to say it, less than the price of a cup of coffee every month. <laughs> Um, yeah, we'd love to have you as a member. Of course, if you upgrade, if you are a member at the $250 level, I'm sorry, if you purchase a membership at the $250 level or you upgrade to $250, I will personally send you a copy of Liberty and Liberalism by Bruce Smith, the first work of classical liberalism published in 
Australia, and that will be a personally signed copy for people who upgrade to the $250 membership level in response to this call. Uh, Emily, you're also a tax, uh, not sorry, taxpayer supported, you're also a membership supported organization. Tell us a little about the Australia Taxpayer Alliance. Yeah, the Australian Taxpayers Alliance is a grassroots advocacy group. Um, we're the largest in Australia representing taxpayers, and we stand for lower taxes, a reduced government waste, and an end to burdensome regulations. Uh, we would like only common sense regulations and kind of like superannuation that help gain your per, increase your prosperity um, as opposed to locking you into a box. Uh, we have a monthly membership which. Is it less than the price of a cup of coffee? I mean, it depends on how many coffees you are buying. Um, you um, probably so about two cups of coffee a month. Two cups of coffee a month. Um, and you can definitely be a member of both organizations. I am a member. Of <laughs> well, I don't know if we can ask people to go three cups of coffee a month. Three cups of coffee. I don't yeah. know. We're still right. my weekly coffee budget. So. Right. Bradley has a question for you. Would it not be better to have a system whereby contributions to superannuation are simply tax deductible? You do get tax deductions currently on your superannuation, uh, but then once you put it in, it's taxed again. So I definitely support a tax deductible system as a way of promoting people to invest. And that's part of my plan is having it be an opt out system with that additional tax deductible. So people are just automatically through inertia in the system, but then they're prompted to put more money in and prompted to keep staying in the system because they're getting that tax deductible, that tax offset. Right. But he follows up, should withdrawal, should in the withdrawal phase, income that's withdrawn from superannuation be tax free? Oh, it definitely should be. And it's not, um, particularly on the interest. So you're paying 15% on all capital gains. There's not a capital gains tax on superannuation. There is. It's less than the actual capital gains tax, but it's there. And when you have an investment that you're saving for, say, 40, 45 years, that's a big number. So forgive me my ignorance and uh, uh, sorry for putting you on the spot, but is the age pension taxable? The age pension? Uh, oh, so I'm sorry for putting you on the spot. <laughs> unfair. <laughs> I, I unfair question. So, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, and don't quote me on sure. that. Jean, Jean wants wants to know what does Emily think about having the full value of housing as part of the asset test for the age pension? Oh, I support that. I think that we have a lot of people with multi-million dollar homes on the pension and they've planned it. Uh, these people are, they're smart and they have good accountants. And so they figured out how to have their um, liquid income be very low so that they qualify for the age pension. And then they have a very nice beachfront property, which is great for them, but isn't great for the taxpayer and isn't great for the people that are still trying to save for their retirement and trying to do so independently. Uh, now I'm trying to get our, uh, uh, questions in from Facebook. We have a question from Callan. Are there any super funds out there that don't funnel funds to unions? Uh, you would have to go pretty much with a self-managed fund uh, in order to ensure that your money doesn't go to unions. If you don't support unions and their mission, then you have to do it yourself. And it's very difficult and very complicated. And there are additional taxes if you try to do that. Unions are incredibly supportive of superannuation, in large part because they get a lot of the money. 
<laughs> now, Don's asking a question that may be outside your expertise, but I'd love to have your insights on it. Why have our equities markets not grown in value over the last decade? And by our, I assume he means Australian equity markets. Yeah, um, I couldn't give that much of a strong answer on that. Um, that is a little bit outside my expertise. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my apologies. I have right. to do a bit of research and get back to you. Sure. Look, Tony asked, I'm glad we have so many questions. And if you have more questions, please get them in because Emily, unlike many of our guests, is giving us short, sharp answers that actually answer your questions. Uh, so I really appreciate that, Emily. We have lots of uh, more questions coming in. Tony asks, are we ethically willing to let people economically implode if they fail in their business ventures. And I guess that's a follow-up to the idea that people should be allowed to invest superannuation in a business venture. Is it just too risky to allow investment in business ventures? I think, yes, we should let people implode. Um, depends on what that implosion looks like, though. So I think as a civil society um, in our modern world, we shouldn't let our elderly starve because they lost all of their investments because the stock market crashed when they turned 65. Um, so... There is that level. Yes, we should let people um, let people implode, let people fail, um, let people go bankrupt. Uh, that is part of the risk, um, and that's also part of the gain. When you're willing to take those kinds of risks that you could lose it all, you're gambling it all. That's when you get the big returns, um, and that's one of the best ways when you have that uncertainty that you actually do make it big. And most people that do fail quite a few times before they do make it big, and they finally get there. Um, there should be some backup, but not huge. It shouldn't be. Um, we're going to make sure you have a living pension um, that has your two-bedroom home and whatever, fund it with your car and all the things. Um, let it be simple. Um, don't let you starve. But Right. I, mean, I may follow up with that a question of my own because we've had, you know, there's just this assumption that, of course, if you have your pension invested in the ASX or in the stock market, you know, if your superannuation is invested with uh, professionals, so to speak, that it will automatically rise. But we've had long periods in history in which stock markets have been stagnant and in which property has been stagnant. Uh, I mean, is it just as much of a risk maybe to turn your money over to these uh, pooled investment funds as it is to start your own business? I think I'm going to make a lot of um, investment people mad. Um, <laughs> they did a study with monkeys um, picking stocks by throwing darts at a table. And they compared that to the experts and the monkeys won. Um, <laughs> so just because you're putting your money with an expert, chances are you're actually losing money in fines and fees. Um, the people that benefit from that are the people that are investing it. And it may make you feel better. Um, but I would recommend I would recommend starting your own business, doing your own research, and having a more hands-on take um, in your money. If you don't have that expertise, then yes, do rely on an expert. Um, I'm not going to be a financial advisor that's telling you not to, but they're not a magic pill. It doesn't mean that you're not going to lose money. Um, experts lose money just as much as the rest of us. Well, I mean, Glenn wants to push you and by implication me a little bit more on this saying, uh, can individual taxpayers, and he does qualify on average, so across the tax system, really make optimal investment decisions with their savings better than the uh, pooled expertise and scale held in super funds 
and by other institutional investors? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that investment, yes, you may be able to get that marginal benefit, but once you take into account the fees that it costs to have these pool of experts that have college degrees and have taken the time to invest, then you're not going to, you're not necessarily going to win. It'll come out about even. I think that, um, I personally, um, I like to invest in index funds. Um, they're relatively secure. They continue to grow. It's a very diverse asset and it doesn't have those fees from someone that's picking the stocks and bonds for me. Uh, I still think that there is a good industry and you can make more money. Those people can make more money and they can win, but not necessarily. It's not necessarily better than your own individual choices. Well, uh, let me personally follow up there because the name of this show is, of course, on Liberty, which is the title of the famous book by John Stuart Mill. And even if, let's take the premise of Glenn's question, even if it were true that professional investors were simply better at investing our money than we are, doesn't Liberty, I shouldn't, I shouldn't put it as a rhetorical question, does Liberty suggest that we should be free to free to fail, so to speak. Yeah, you should be able to choose whether you want that expert to do it for you. If, you make, if that makes you feel better about your investment, if that takes effort off of you, which I think is a lot of why people do pay these financial um, experts to make these investments, is they don't have to do the work. And that's what that fee is going to. And you can decide whether that's good enough for you or not. But you should have that option to fail. You, I made the mistake of investing in Boeing right before they made the 737 and <laughs> I lost a lot of money. Um, that's okay. Um, we Sometimes we fail, sometimes we, we do well um, and we should have that choice. Right. I have to admit, I, I'm really, I had not thought of the idea of superannuation being available for people to invest in their own businesses until you raise the prospect. I'd always thought housing, housing, housing. And I was dubious about that. But when you raised the idea that people could actually start businesses of their own with their superannuation savings, I find that very inspiring. I don't know if you have any interest in talking more to that point of uh, entrepreneurship and superannuation. Yeah. Well, I think human creativity is limitless. Um, so I can't say what each individual person would do with that money. But I know that the possibilities are amazing. Um, we could have all of these next businesses that never existed. The opportunity cost of wrapping people's money up in these tight funds that they cannot access, that they have no choice to put their money in, is very high and we don't think about that. Um, the present value, that real value of that money to that individual person and then is a lot less because they can't access it, uh, because they can't then take that to pursue whatever dream that is. Um, that could be starting a business, that could be sending their kids to a better school, that could be uh, a home. Uh, the home is the most common one that people think of. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of creative people, I think, that are out there that would like to start their next thing, pursue that wild dream that can't because they don't have that initial funding. Uh, they're worried about paying rent for the next bit and they just can't. Now, luckily, our viewers are smarter than our host. Uh, Jean has informed us that the age pension does form part of your taxable income. However, of course, if you rely solely on the age pension, your income will be too low to attract any tax. Uh, so thank you, Jean, for that. Any further questions? We do have a few more minutes with Emily. Please do feed them in. I hope I haven't missed any questions. Emily, I want to raise this issue of the uh, the incentives to be in the retirement system. So we talked about 
you know, investing in housing or a business versus investing in superannuation. Would you, you've, you've suggested tax reforms in the superannuation system. Should those cover any form of retirement savings we invest in, or should it remain as an incentive to be in the superannuation system? Well, that's a very good question that I don't know if I thought about that much. Um, I know that the government has now, now has it so that you can put some money into your um, superannuation fund, and that will be tax deductible. You can put up to $30,000 for a first home buyer to put that money in and then withdraw it, and they get that tax advantage um, if they then go and purchase that home. Uh, it's a rel relatively new program, um, and I think that's a great idea um, to have that as being an option. Um, I'm definitely curious as to what that would look like with uh, risk, because there is that risk that then the taxpayers will um, pay for that down the road. But I tend to think that if you do have a good um, a good business plan and you can pitch that um, to a bank, I think you should be able to also use your own money for that. Um, so I think that that would be a brilliant idea. Right. Glenn has a question about the new uh, Your Super uh, proposals from the government. Are you up on Your Super? I'm not fully up on it. Can I okay. give you a briefing on it? Or? <laughs> no, so we'll, we'll pass on that. I do want to, though, come to one final question that's been on my mind as we've been talking. When experts discuss superannuation, it's always with around these questions of, you know, administrative efficiency, taxation, uh, how well professional investors invest your money, returns, et cetera, et cetera. But for ordinary people who often do their budgeting on a pure cash basis, is it often or perhaps easier for them to understand that, yeah, well, in retirement, I, if I own my home, I don't have to pay rent. So that's taken care of. Uh, or if I have some other you know, expense taken care of, if I can prepay something else, that's taken care of. I mean, it, it, does it make more sense for maybe ordinary people to be budgeting in retirement on some kind of cash flow basis where they understand what they're doing as a, understand very well what they're doing as opposed to putting their savings in the hands of professionals who may in the end on average be more efficient but much more opaque yeah well i think the fact that it's taking me weeks to write this paper and figure out what the tax code is and what the implications are if you make different choices with your investment um says a lot it's very confusing. It's very complicated. Um, and you're a policy professional. And I'm a policy professional, and I'm sitting here reading the ATO's website, and I'm like, okay, so if you do this, well, what does that mean? Like, what kind of fund? If you work for a private industry versus a public industry, and there's all of these things that come in, and um, it's a bureaucratic mess. But personal finance isn't complicated, really. Um, I think someone said, forget his name, that you can put it all, all you need to know on, about finance on an index card, card for your own personal well-being. And it really is quite simple when you're trying to manage your own personal assets, but a lot of people don't know that. So I think there should be a move to educate people in schools, educate our young, um, our children about well, how does compound interest work? How does savings work? What, like these really basic ideas. So then people are equipped to make these choices when they reach retirement or when they start earning money and they're trying to decide, well, how much cash do I put here? How much cash do I put there? Um, how will this grow as time goes on? Um, it isn't that complicated and people can do it themselves. Right. Final question. It's a very easy one. If people want to find out more about your work, where do they go? 
Absolutely. Uh, go to the Australian Taxpayers Alliance.org and they have uh, all of my work is there. Um, at the ATA, uh, you can look on under reports and submissions, and this paper will be coming up shortly. Oh, what? So tell us about the paper. I have We haven't talked about the paper yet. Yeah. Uh, paper is in progress. I'm looking at uh, the different tax implications on superannuation and what would happen if we did cut taxes? How much money would you have at the end of the day in your pocket if we cut taxes? Okay, great. Well, I'd certainly like to know that myself. <laughs> so hopefully I'll find out in just a week or two. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Emily Dye, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on, Salvador. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks to our producer, Emily Holmes. Our executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Bonus. Next week, David Kelly and Contemporary China. We hope we'll see you then.